Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships. My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach, and within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have a wonderful new Aussie friend with me, Maddie Lansdow. Maddie is a scientist and nutritionist, and we had such a great talk all about science, nutrition, food, food systems, and the diet. You know, diet as in what you eat, not as in the restriction diet. He started off in a nutritional epigenetics lab serving elite athletes, and then he went on to work in disease research team within hospitals. And what he found out really helped or led him down the path that he's on now, which was that when he was working with cancer patients, they weren't necessarily dying of cancer. You'll find out more in the episode what they were dying of. And... Then he became more interested in figuring out how to people, how to have people live healthier lives, feel better, and make the connection between the cause of disease and the impact of food on the body. We discuss all these things and much more, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Maddie. Welcome, Maddie. So happy to have you on the show today. Hey, Lara. Thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into whatever we get stuck into. (laughs) Yeah. So you are a scientist and a nutritionist and Mm -hmm. you have extensive 
work and experience with athletes, but also working in hospitals. Can you just kind of tell us your background, how you became interested in diets and how you define diet? I'd also like to know that. And then how that's um, where you are today with that. Yeah, sure. So I guess, yeah, it's it's funny because a lot of people um, after consuming a lot of my own podcast and my own content, they're like, why does a young man teach women about emotional eating? And it's like, and I started in hospitals and started with elite athletes. And so it's like, what is that journey? What does that journey look like? And so basically I grew up with my mum as a nurse um, and I was in the countryside. I used to go to the hospital as daycare before I went to school um, and I would literally run around the ward. So I developed this really positive association with the idea of medicine and the hospital. And, and I grew up myself to be a relatively elite athlete um and so i guess that was my first introduction to nutrition although i didn't really know it it was just more you know eat lots of carbohydrates an hour before you race type thing uh back then and um and then from there i moved to melbourne australia so the the, the big smoke from where i was from um and uh that's where I sort of began the the journey to getting into health and wellness myself. Uh, and I guess it started off with me being a very typical mainstream scientist. Uh, and I was very much like medicine's the best thing ever. The hospitals are amazing. Doctors are lords. <laughs> you know, it was very much this idea that, uh, well, I, do, I was just too young and naive to understand basically capitalism is the truth. Um, <laughs> and so I was, I was confused. I was like, you know, why, uh, if this wasn't the best thing ever, why did we create it? And that question came about because I, I did work with athletes and that, that was like really high end specific nutrition. You know, we were going, uh, nutritional epigenetic stuff. So we were literally genetically profiling people and creating protein powders and lipid powders and, um, carbohydrate powders specific to their metabolic genome. So it's like, as almost as personalized and hybridized as you can get. And that was really cool just to see what is, I guess is possible uh, in human performance. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up in working in a cancer hospital for seven years. And that's where uh, my belief systems really started to become unstuck, which is interesting because you would think that most people's belief systems would be, um, I guess, solidified in that environment. And so um, so my, back, my, my first degree that I did was in forensics. So I had a background in forensic science as a molecular biologist. And so that meant that a lot of what I was involved with at work was uh, death audits and, and reviews of death data and that type of thing and understanding why people died. And the first sort of light bulb that came off for me in the first six months of working there was that nobody really ever died of cancer in a cancer hospital, which was really surprising because this whole cancer field was new to me at the time. And I was like, what? That's really bizarre. Everyone was dying of um, pharmaceutical toxicity. And it's funny because the more and more I tell this story uh, over the years and podcasts and clients, uh, everybody knows someone that's died of cancer and you'll get the odd person that says, actually, that's exactly what happened to my partner or that's exactly what they said happened to my child or whatever it is. And so there's there's this kind of knowledge, but people just kind of think, oh, well, that's just what how it happens. And so for me, that struck this chord of curiosity. And so I thought, this doesn't to totally feel right, um, you know, that nobody in a cancer hospital dies of cancer. And I'm, after seven years, I'm yet to see it. Um, and so... From there, I just went on my own research journey and thought, well, I really should figure out this cancer thing because I'm confused by this and sort of went down my own, yeah, my own research journey outside my job. Um, and I literally started on the World Health Organization website's cancer page. I thought, 
Might as well start here. This is the information that informs the globe. Um, and sentence one, I was stumped instantly because sentence one literally says, um, and I'm not sure if it's the same now, but at the time it said, um, 90 to 95% of all cancer is created by diet and lifestyle, diet, lifestyle, and tobacco. Um, and only five to 7% approximately is basically due to genetic bad luck. Now, if you ask most people about cancer, they will say, oh, that's bad luck. Most people have bad luck. The media has, you know, ha led us to believe that, you know, you just get chosen by some overlord uh, to be punished with this wretched disease and that you've just, unfortunately, that's it. And most people also give up in that moment too when they get a cancer diagnosis. They think that it's such bad luck that it's totally unchangeable, that they surrender to the process. And that's a really, really sad, sad sort of situation that we've created around the world word cancer. And so, yeah, from there, I, I went to my professor and said, hey, the World Health Organization website says diet, lifestyle and tobacco. Why is this billion dollar building that we are in not about diet, lifestyle and tobacco? And he simply laughed at me and just said, oh, Maddie, if it was that simple, we would have figured it out years ago. Um, and that that obviously wasn't enough for my curiosity, even though I appeared like this naive early 20s scientist that was like, oh, it seems so simple. Um, I, I still was like, oh, no, nah, I'm not convinced. It just still doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I went down my own rabbit hole, learned about the history of big pharmaceutical companies, uh, the Rockefeller family, the taking over of governments across the world in order to um, introduce Western medicine, the, the criminalization of many alternative medicines, which have actually been around for thousands of years and kept populations like China alive, you know, for 10,000 years of Chinese medicine. Um, and so... Then I, I guess over a couple of years, I just became the office hippie, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, every day that I would walk through clinic, I would visibly see that basically everyone was significantly overweight. Um, and at this point, data was starting to come out about obesity and, and body fat being uh, directly related to the onset of you know your dementias, your Alzheimer's, your diabetes, this type of thing. And so, it, and it's now the number one biggest predictor of, of cancer is is your body weight. Um, and so I was like, okay, I obviously need to teach people how to eat. And so I went and got a nutrition degree and thought, this is going to be easy. I'm going to solve the world's cancer problems <laughs> before they even have to walk in the door here. Um, and then I did that for a while. I toured around the world um, at conferences and wellness events and retreats. And I never spoke to a single person that didn't already know what to eat. I was like, I've gone and done all of this health coaching and nutritionist study and everybody actually already knows. And it's almost like, yeah, it's, the idea that we need more education to me at this point is a myth. It's like we don't, like people know. Um, and so I was like, oh, what's, what is it then? And then I went the next layer. It's like, well, if everybody knows what to eat, even if it's just a rough general idea, then the next step is why don't I do it then? And that's where I realized everybody asked that question. All the women I work with have been on 30 or 40 years of dieting to still ask the same question. I know what to do, but why don't I do it then? And if we can't answer that, that question, then we're going to end up with uh, being overweight, with diseases and that type of thing. So if we can answer that question and ch change our behavior, then we can actually you know, have a poss the possibility of a healthy outcome in life. And, and that's where I landed at the emotional eating, realizing that our emotions drive our behavior and our behavior produces the outcome in our body. And so in a nutshell, that's the journey, basically. 
Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. The first thing <laughs> I'll yeah. The first thing I'll say is can you for everybody listening, can you um or I guess define what is epigenetics and so when somebody thinks of their own kind of prediction of of how they're going to turn out in terms of big, being heavier or lighter or living a long time or not, can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So originally we started with the idea of the DNA or your genetic information, and then that was the blueprint for anything that would happen in your life, the way that your body was designed, the way that you look, the way that you show up in the world. And then as as we moved forward, we started learning that it wasn't necessarily, yes, it's a blueprint, but it depends how we engage with the blueprint. So you might think about it as a series of levers um, that you might pull on and off. And the food that you eat the air that you breathe, the, um, the stress that you experience in your life, the situation you create inside your body determines which of those levers get turned on or off. For instance, you could have a predisposition to cancer and you might have heard the idea of like, oh, cancer's in my family. So there may be a genetic predisposition. However, if you don't live a life that triggers the cancer gene to turn on, then you may never get cancer ever. And then, you know, in theory, you've broken the family curse. Um, and so I often think that it's not necessarily genetics that are handed down in families that we need to be worried about. It's recipes, it's behaviors, it's the, the way that we navigate our relationships and solve problems and, and eat and breathe and drink and that type of thing that is handed down. And so that's why families have the same health problems because they lived the same way, triggering the same genetics. Um, so yeah, epigenetics is more how we engage with that blueprint of our DNA. Um, and the beautiful thing about that and the reason that 90 to 95% of cancer is diet and lifestyle is because we can dictate that diet and lifestyle and thus dictate the, the genes that are turned on or off. Mm, that's a brilliant way of describing it too. I like the levers. I've heard different things like, you know, seeds are there and how much you fuel it with what mm. you're putting in your body or the environment, like you're saying. So let's go back to food because I love what you said that it's not, the issue isn't people not knowing what to eat. It's just the reason why they're eating. But the caveat to that, I think, is it's very confusing, right? I mean, yeah. every if you've lived long enough, there's, there's cycles of, you know, I remember back in the mid-80s, 90s, it was like non-fat was, you know, everywhere. And so we are fed messages that I'm, I'm not saying that they're educational, but they're from a consumer standpoint, that's what the information people are getting. So I do think there is confusion, but I think it, you'll, you're right at that. If you ask people like, what do you think you should eat to be like to optimize your health? They're going to say lots of fruits and vegetables and things that aren't in a package. I think most people recognize that. And is that what you have found when you, when you say most people know what to eat? They just don't always choose that because they're eating for other reasons. Exactly correct, basically. So yeah, I've, I've never met someone that didn't say when asked that question, exactly what you said, fruits, vegetables, meat, like maybe grass-fed beef or salmon, you know, or whatever, whatever 
arrangement of those foods they suggest it's something like that um and yeah everybody knows that i've spoken to that chocolate for breakfast is probably not a good idea as well so they also know the opposite because they were raised with the idea that these are treat foods or you know these are foods that you only have when you you know you've done something well or or you know and that kind of psychology has been created around that food because too much of a, a good thing is not a good thing basically uh and it's you don't have to go far now to see the consequences of too much of a good thing so it's becoming more and more obvious um so so yeah no everywhere i've spoken it's people generally knew however you do raise a good point because it's like okay i know that i should generally be eating in this space but how do i do it and then yes then we begin the onslaught of every health professional's opinion on diet ever which just confuses people and there's a there's like a saying in sales and business which is a confused mind never buys um, and it's the same thing with with eating healthy. It's like if you're confused and overwhelmed and like being bombarded with different perspectives and ideas and and there's a research study to produce any like any conclusion about anything that you ever want. Um, and yeah, then of course, your confused mind doesn't buy the idea. So it just steps back into what it knows, which is the unhelpful stuff, right. The default. Okay, yeah. so starting to unpack this, um let's first talk about, why people are not doing this besides that being confused. What have you discovered and what do you teach to that really first starts to um, really, really discern what it is that is um, cueing people in how they're eating? Yeah, I, th I think there's, there's, at this stage, there's a number of different things. And I mean, I, I deal with emotional eating sort of at the, that's kind of where we end up, but there's a lot of reasons for why people end up there in the beginning, because the the way that we were raised and, and particularly the last 50 years of Western culture has been exceptionally privileged, wealthy, abundant. Uh, and so we were often raised by, you know, if we think about our grandparents' generation, approximately, depending who's listening, you know, coming out of World War II and then like they want to give us everything you know there's this chapter of people that saw the absolute destruction of the world um and then the next iteration of of the, or the generation was abundance and success and wealth and money and harmony and it's so you can you can understand the sort of generational psychology of wanting to give this generation everything and produce everything and um you know take advantage of being wealthy in america or wealthy in australia and you know kings of the world type thing um the catch is like with everything is that that ends up coming at a cost, right? Uh, of overindulgence, and um, and I mean, if you were to think about it from from an army perspective, you know, like they think about um, in historically when countries went to war, one of the strategies that they would use is trying to supply the other army with loads and loads of food to slow them down because they would beef up, they, their brains would move slower. Um, and so if you think about, you know, each each country is an empire, which is still how the world works. Like the Western world is going backwards really fast in, in mm. being able to protect itself, defend itself, that type of thing. But I think it makes sense how we got here because, yeah, we, we want to live in this abundant, fruitful, amazing world. However, yeah, we're obviously experiencing the cost of that. And I think that a couple of things lined up that have not been really helpful. One, the internet happened, mm. um, which allowed us to go from being advertised to at 6 p.m. at dinner, you know, when we turned on the nightly news, you know, sort of mid-90s and before, um, to being advertised to every second that we've got a screen in front of us anywhere. Um, and so that 
took a massive leap forward in the amount of times that we're being exposed to advertising, which is all subconscious and working on the subconscious part of our brain. Um, and also what happened in that time is that, well, the country's GDP went up. So people were able to afford so much more um, and convenience culture started coming in. So these big, big behemoth companies that, um, you know, are able to control the entire supply of the agricultural system and the nutrition system. And therefore the advice that medical doctors are taught and then given to people. And, and then we're in this situation where they've got a monopoly over the market. And so the we're in this conundrum of being introduced to the internet and all of this advertising and growing up with parents that aren't able to teach us how to regulate this insanely dopa like dopamine uh, heavy environment and dopamine being the happy hormone, the thing that we feel pulled to eat sugar or pulled to eat the chocolate or, you know, anything that's good for us, basically. And so we've got companies like, you know, the chocolate and sugar companies, but also your social media companies, which pay millions and millions of dollars to put people's heads in MRI machines to understand how their brain can be addicted to the behavior of of staying on Facebook every day, or there's a book called the Dorito effect where they talk about what they do with Doritos, right? So they, what they do is that every ninth chip, they salt five times as much as any of the others in the bag. And they do that because it triggers the gambling um, addiction psychology um, so that you keep going back into the bag. Like, where's the next one? Where's that one with, you know, five times the amount of salt that I can lather up on my tongue. And so we've got this phenomenal growth in science and technology as well that is being leveraged to addict us through the marketing and advertising, which is becoming more and more manipulative at, in the, at the same time. And so there's just this, this culmination of events that have happened in the last 20 or 30 years that have just led to this uncontrollable ability to consume. Just consume, consume, consume. 7-Eleven's around the corner, you know, 24-7 basically. And so it's like at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday, if I have a craving, I don't have to suffer in any way. <laughs> I can just walk around the corner and solve the problem. And it's the same with pulling our phone out first thing in the morning, addicting ourselves to this dop dopamine supply of like stimulation that is just incredibly unnatural. And we don't have a mechanism in the body to regulate it. That's why so many people are addicted to their phones and so many people are addicted to sugar. So there's a lot to compete against. There's a lot there. And, you know, I was thinking when you said that like 7-Eleven and this, I mean, again, taking into account that this, is, this isn't for everybody, but certainly our Western world has a lot of it is I don't think many people know what it's like to feel empty, like to feel mm. not constantly satiated. Like I almost feel like in some ways people are uncomfortable with that. Um, how important it is, do you feel like that is physiologically to start understanding like I am starting to get full, so I should probably stop, and then allowing yourself to digest and then allowing yourself to start to get kind of true signals of hunger, how much of that do you think is involved in this, uh, you know, the kind of epidemic we're in right now that people are, are not eating well and their diets are poor? Yeah, I think you raise a really good point is that so many people don't know what empty feels like. Um, and that's probably got a lot to do with the fact that our body is, uh, it's, it's used to, it, you know, we ate a particular type of diet or at least whole real food. For depending on your belief system, a million years, 2000 years, however long, a very long time, right? So 99% of history was whole real food that came from the earth um, or was hunted. And so in the last tiny little space of maybe 50 to 100 years, uh, we've gone to this food that 
is not even remotely um, in any type of composition that it resembles in nature. Um, and I know that when people hear the nature word, they're like, oh, it's all woo-woo. Um, but we we are just animals of nature. We're only a few hundred years removed from being outside all of the time, which in genetic evolution, nothing's happened in that time. Literally, we have not genetically evolved at all. Um, and so we've got these foods that we're putting into our body that have really high amounts of sugar and carbohydrates and have no protein. So that creates a situation in our body where, where we feel stuffed, but we still find ourselves swinging on the fridge door because even though we've physically filled the space with more than we need, there's actually not enough proper nutrition in the right proportions in order for the um, nutrition receptors and stretch receptors in the stomach to say, oh, we've got everything we need. Like you can never overeat steak. I've never seen somebody not be able to stop eating steak because there's a signal in the body that's like, we've got enough protein, we've got enough fat, this is good, we feel okay, any more and we'll feel really unwell. But if we have too much of this sort of bag, a box or a can type foods, this convenient stuff that we can buy from the supermarket or fast food, then yeah, we've got this, yeah, this out of proportion mix of nutrition. And so it's, it's driving this uh, constant need to put food in. And there was a study that came out last year, 2021, um, from the US, US population that found that currently US citizens are eating between six and 11 times a day. And the reason that, that that is happening is primarily because in any one of those meals, it's probably highly deficient in protein and extremely rich in uh, refined sugars and carbohydrates, which and those things just continue the cycle of, I don't have enough nutrition, so I'm going to go keep looking for it. And there's been a bunch of studies on insects and different animals and humans as well, where they found that most species will overeat anything to hit their protein quota. Even locusts will overeat as much carbohydrate as possible to hit the protein quota, which then begs to differ. Like if we swap the whole idea around and we start with the protein on our plate or we start prioritizing protein, then we're more likely to trigger an actual satiation response and actually have that desire to put the knife and the fork down or to stop looking for the next meal. So, yeah, and, and, then, and then the next step would be, yeah, getting uh, familiar with the idea of feeling empty rather than I always need to feel stuffed all of the time. And that's just a conditioned thing. We've been conditioned that every time your stomach makes a noise, you must be hungry or you haven't eaten for two hours, so you must be hungry. And that was a lot of the diet and nutrition advice, you know, in the late 80s and 90s eat six times a day to keep your metabolism up um however we just need to walk outside or even look in the mirror to see how that advice went and Mm -hmm. the studies the self-study says it didn't go too well so we're going to do things differently so i've got a question about protein because i think that's really confusing for people and in fact the Western world in many ways has consumes too much protein. So they might be consuming too much protein in addition to the other things. And the World Mm -hmm. Health Organization, in fact, the protein requirements it recommends are substantially lower than our Western world um, is eating. So where, what's the gap there? Is it that they're not eating all the other good things as well? Yeah, I think when you when you mentioned that, my first thought is the like the idea that um, red meat causes cancer, mm-hmm. and that data that sort of caused a worldwide vegan movement was totally flawed because the data was collected on people that were getting their meat 
from McDonald's, an In-N-Out burger. And so they were getting their protein along with a liter of soda and deep fried stuff in vegetable oil, which is like just catastrophic for your arteries and your heart and your brain. And so my thought would be the same, that it's like unless unless the data was collected on people that were eating healthy, it would be very difficult to blame the protein for you know for that that kind of situation of like oh people are eating too much protein and it's still in unhealthy situations so uh, and the other thing is a lot of that protein that is consumed again it's in um, combinations in these foods that are not natural so um, we're sending incorrect signals to our brain via our stomach as to whether we're full or we're not full so we go back for more um, and again many of these uh, these proteins are wrapped in this delicious sugary sweet um, sauces and flavors and buns so it's far easier to get them in um, which is why like you know at Christmas time we managed to seem to be able to eat so much stuff because we combine the really rich sugary stuff with the protein we eat so much turkey and ham and this type of thing and we're just when we do stop we like a beached whale because there's so much in there <laughs> right right so much going on. yes yeah oh my gosh so what is um what are what are some of the recommendations that you when you're working with people, how, how do you start um, detangling like their habits? And and then how do you make recommendations? I know it, you probably don't have a cookie cutter approach, but I'm sure you have kind of a North Star upon which you are, uh, you know, influenced and geared toward. Yeah, for sure. So I think the only way to change current and future behavior is to understand the past. And I think this is something that... Um, sort of modern yo-yo diet type thing of like 28 day challenge or you know solve all your all of your life problems in the next eight weeks type thinking it's only focused on forward movement and the the problem with that is that we didn't get into into the current situation we're in by just focusing on this perfect ideal goal and never thinking about anything else it's kind of like problems will never happen again in this amazing utopia on this diet um and so in order for us to know what needs to be changed, we can't just drive a car that's got an engine that's smoking and never pull over, get out, lift the hood and be like, which part is the problem? So we have to start in the beginning by looking back across the course of our life, even if it's just the last you know, few months or year. There's a pattern that's existed because if the pattern didn't exist, then we wouldn't be looking to change our behavior. And so we have to understand why do I do what I do? because it currently has a function and actually, believe it or not, has a list of benefits. You literally do this because it benefits you in some way. And that's okay. Um, like, and th th there's, a, there's a lot of instances, especially I work primarily with women, where they are trying to gain body weight or sabotage their body fat loss because of maybe they were sexually abused. Mm -hmm. right in their past and and then when we really dig into it we discover that like oh this keeps me overweight which keeps me unattractive to men which keeps me safe like there's a massive benefit there of survival like at your core level you know what i mean and that's one sort of more extreme example but there's hundreds either side of that of more intense and far less intense and so we have to understand why have we done what we've done up until now um and why is it worth changing because a lot of the time we go on these diets as well, we're just caught up in the culture of being skinny. And mm -hmm. it's like, do we really need to change it? Like, is it something you truly need to change? Um, and, the, you know, or, or are you just caught up in like, you know, the social group says that I should look like this or the society says I should look like this? Because there's a very big difference between skinny and healthy. 
and society really pushes the idea of skinny. And and an example of that might be, you know, say 10 kilos or 20 pounds you need, you want to lose. Um, and that's a really good idea when you're hanging out with your personal trainer or your nutritionist. However, you'll absolutely refuse to give up date night with your partner or the family, which is pizza and wine and chocolate and all the things happen. And so you're not quite able to get to the 20 pound um, goal, but actually your healthy, happy life is like 15 pounds. And that's okay. You know what I mean? That's that's uh, totally yeah. okay. Yeah, I like we're, that. We're ticking a bunch of bunch of different boxes about your life being holistically happy, not just you know being happy whilst you're looking in the mirror and kind of miserable every other part of the day. Uh, that's not the goal. So we need yeah, to understand. Yeah, a lot of people who are doing it just to be skinny aren't aren't going to be happy. You know, it's oh, like totally. uh, there's people that are naturally thin for sure, but the yeah, just this kind of idea or ideal that that you're going for, even if you get there, like you said, are you happy? It's like you have to live your life and it's really how to use food as fuel, which is really what it is. And not as all these other things we make it emotional and um, kind of stuffing things down or what or habitual tendencies. I mean, how, how convincing is it for people when you start to talk to them about food as something that should be pleasurable, but should also really, it's there to help us operate better. You know, it's really help us to live fuller, to feel clearer, um, to be leaner in the ways we need to be. Um, how, how, like, is that the approach or do you kind of go in more of a side door uh, as, a, as a motivating or educational uh, tool? Yeah, I think it's, it's that goal of like the ha happy, healthy life, essentially. Um, what do you want out of it? Sort of, I don't want to project onto anybody what uh, they should want for themselves because, uh, you know, some people do want to look skinny and thin and sometimes it's like, you know, that makes me think of Jim Carrey. You know, he says that I wish everybody could be famous and rich to realise that's not the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, they need to go on that journey to, to get there, you know. Um, but for me, it's all like fundamentally it's about being happy in your own skin whatever that looks like um like in my belief system if you look at all the information and you're like you know what maddie i i'm i'm just never gonna stop eating chocolate and having a glass of wine every night and i've made that choice i'm like awesome you do you you know what i mean like you just if that you're cool with that amazing the catch is that I've yet to meet somebody that doesn't do that seven days a week and also doesn't feel terrible about themselves seven days a week at some point during that day. Um, so, so yeah, so it's about the individual wanting to be happy, feeling in control of their life is really, really important. It's I find that it's less and less about the number on a scale. And actually, for most people, I encourage them to not use scales at all. It's less about the end result and more about feeling in control of their health and in control of their choices and building trust within their own body and within their own personality. And, and it's this development of self-integrity so that they can start practicing self-care and self-love and self-respect. Um, and the more that we develop that, interestingly, the less the focus becomes on the goal, but the more likely to achieve the goal we are, because instead of the idea of like, um, you know, I need to lose weight to be healthy. It's like, I need to be healthy in order for my body to find its natural state of being whatever that looks like. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask you. If you don't believe in scales, which I don't either, uh, because I feel like they 
you, very few people can use scales and probably feel pretty normal about it yeah. um, in terms of it's just a number and it's giving us a gauge. But most people, ha there's a lot more underneath that. Mm -hmm. How do you, um, what kind of prompts do you give people or uh, what is it that you help people realize are, are going to be those markers, so to speak, that are showing them that this is the positive path? Like they're not necessarily losing weight or we don't know because we're not going to weigh you. But what are some of those markers that you talk to people about when you say being like, yeah, being their best or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, f f so because we start in the beginning by retrospectively analyzing the things that we want to change and figuring out what it is we actually want to change and which situations lead to the problem food or the problem wine or the problem situation, the, the markers of progress and success are being able to either enter those situations and be able to say no comfortably, not, you know, not get into any weird situation, not self-sabotage, not, and, you know, basically be in control of yourself in those moments or consciously choose to avoid those moments altogether. Um, and, and so they're the, they're the things that we're usually celebrating on Zoom calls. People will, will jump on and be like, so I went to Friday night drinks and, and I used the, the little spiel that we came up with because we do this like, um, you know, development of sort of communication tools to, so that people aren't attacking us and judging us for our choices. Um, and everyone was fine with it. And I just had what I had and it was okay. And like, that's the kind of little win that leads to long-term results because it's like now every Friday night, I can employ that strategy or now every Friday night, the group I hang out with know this is how I operate. Um, and it might be the same for any other situation. So yeah, showing when, when people are able to show that they're in control, um, or another one might be is that I made the mistake. Um, I, I, I ended up with the food that I really didn't want to. However, after it was over, I just let go of it. I didn't mm, go home yeah. and punish myself and, and sabotage and just tell myself how horrible and savage I was. And then I just spiraled for a whole <laughs> week. So it's, again, it's this ability to get back in the driver's seat of their own choices in life that is, that is, and that's collectively what produces a healthy result in your life, right? Is that all these situations that feel seemingly out of control and on absolute autopilot and have possibly been that way for years, apart from the occasional, you know, hyper-restrictive diet you did here and there, that they're the moments that over a lifetime will collect and uh, culminate in a really positive body, mind, spirit, social circle, all of the things that lead to a happy, healthy life. I love that because it's very empowering because it, mm. it really, um, it's permissive. It doesn't sound restrictive. It isn't like you've got to be perfect, but you know, these are these, I think the ideas when you hear about these concepts um, of like 80, 20, you know, 80% of the time I'm trying to eat in this more healthful, mindful way. And it's okay if I have that Friday night and go off and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to accost myself for it or have any punitive thoughts. It's that, it's that part of it. So I know there's all these different ideas, like 80-20 being one of them, not that, but I've just read about that. But yeah. intermittent fasting is another one. And I noticed on your website, um, you have this you have a little menu bar and it says why intermittent fasting is the best way to lose weight. Can you talk about what intermittent fasting is? Cause I think people are sometimes confused about it. First of all, they hear fasting and it's like, Oh shit, <laughs> no eating. <laughs> um, and I, I personally have my opinions about it, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, sure. So I think one of the first things for people that have are hearing it or there's any kind of <gasps> panic moment, um, literally just call it intermittent eating. 
mm. which is what mm -hmm. eating should be. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, it's just like a, a time between when we do eat and when we don't eat. That's all it is. Uh, I don't have any strong beliefs about the ratio of when you should fast and when you shouldn't fast. For some people, it's more about optimizing the space in between meals. And this comes back to the idea that Americans are eating six to 11 times a day, right? It's not that I think that everybody should be fasting, you know, 22 hours a day and eating once a day. It's more that on a major scale, we're eating too much too often. Um, and so it's it's more about just focusing on really nutrient-dense, whole real food meals. Um, and for you, that might be two times a day, three times a day. There might be a snack in there as well. Um, it's going to look slightly different for everyone. Um, but the, it's just the idea that we need to go through phases of the day where there's where we're empty. Back to that empty thing, right? That yes. our gut actually has some time to switch off. Like, depending on what which research you look at, there's 80 to 90% of the immune system lives in the gut. And if we go 50, 60, 70 years without ever turning the gut off or out actually giving it a break to recover itself, then no wonder we get all of these uh, autoimmune diseases, which are just sort of everywhere in the world and all of these different diseases because the immune system uh, and our gut health has just been absolutely smashed and probably with foods that destroy it as well. Uh, without a single period of, you know, more than eight hours of being able to heal itself. Um, so I think it's more about, it's less about, you know, the longest fast wins. And I literally say that on the first Zoom call for everybody. There's no trophy for the person that fasts the longest. And actually the person that does that uh, is probably going to stuff their metabolism. So let's not do that. <laughs> but it's more just getting in a healthy routine of like when I do eat, when I don't eat. And that also um, coincides with being able to, de to determine, am I hungry? Am I not hungry? Right? So exactly. that's the way I, I think yeah. about it. I, 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 I totally, I, I was eating this way before the term came and I yeah. called it intuitive eating, which is, mm -hmm. I don't actually, I'm not hungry when I wake up and I was always kind of, oh, you got to eat breakfast, you got to eat breakfast. But it, I always felt more tired when I had breakfast and then I'd feel much more energized when I would wait until I naturally felt hungry, which is never before 11 or 12. And that doesn't mean I don't like have a banana around or some like small piece of fruit or something. Um, for me, that works really well because then I'll be teaching. And so I was just doing that naturally. I'm like, I'm going to, and I noticed my energy was way better because I was allowing that. And then, then the whole term came along and I was like, I'm doing that. And, um, but I think it does scare people because they have this, we've been trained and then we train our, we train our body by, mm eating first thing when we wake up and and if people are hungry when they first wake up that might be that might be their you know metabolism that might be like you said they might not have been eating uh a, like as whole you know wholesomely or satiating before the day before so they're but but I think it is um there's such value in in listening you know really listening and that intermittent fasting to me more than anything is just uh, tuning in more to like, am I actually hungry or am I just eating because there's something in front of me, a pastry or whatever? It's like, okay, well, then you're just going to kind of mess up your whole, I think it messes up your whole day if you don't, if you yeah. don't eat according to what you're feeling, you know, like, and I'm not yeah. talking emotional feeling, I'm like literally physiologically feeling. Um, so I, I think that's really great to understand. Okay. Well, so, there's, there's yeah. also so much learned hunger. Like, because mm. people often can't imagine never having breakfast. And that was me at one point too. I was like, what do you mean? You know, um, 
but we learned to be hungry oh, at yeah, that time. Oh, yes, we learned. And it was also like, oh, my gosh, you better eat before you go. Like, it's like you have a short window. Yeah. You better eat. You're going to be able to focus more. So it was like all these different sources. And it might be true for some people, but not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, so when you uh, – well, let's talk about you. What have you discovered yeah. um, for your own – because I'm sure that is informing you in some way – although I, I, I see from your website and everything that you're talking about and your knowledge that you're probably very, um, you're accommodating to different people, like really recognizing one, one menu, one diet is not necessarily going to be uh, fit, one size fit all. But what, do you, yeah. what, is your, what have you discovered about yourself? Like when you're kind of feeling your best and most energized, and I'm sure by now it's just you're programmed in and you can't imagine eating a different way, but what is what does your diet look like? Yeah, it's very wholesome. So mm -hmm. it's very much an even amount of everything. I always prioritize protein. That's sort of the main go-to. Um, so and, I, and I've tried lots of different diets. I went. I've done carnivore. I've done vegan. I've because I want to know how it all feels. Yeah, <clears throat> like how it feels, but also how to do it functionally. Like mm -hmm. because um, a lot of people I think have uh, challenges with diets like that, not because. They don't know what they should be doing, but it's like, oh, things are really expensive and I have to travel all the way across town to get that type of thing. Um, you know, there's other limitations. So, um, so yeah, I've given pretty much everything a go. Um, for me, it's very wholesome. I, it'll be very rare that you'll find a meal that I have without uh, animal protein in it. Um, yeah, I love, love my meat. Um, but yeah, there's always veggies fat it's it's all it's all kind of there on the plate for most meals i often do the first meal of the day before i go to the gym um uh so sorry as i get back from the gym is very much sort of a keto meal you would almost say sometimes there's some veggies in it but it's usually sort of steak and avocado type combination but generally across the board it's very it's very wholesome and do you um when you talk to people knowing that not everybody's going to have access to you know, like fresh off the ground, fresh out of the ground, or what, what, what do you recommend for people when they're, when they're buying their meals and buying their produce and, and, um, and whatnot, like how to, how to determine like what's the best option available? Yeah. Well, I think for most people, and, and I think that's as well, something we get caught up in, in wellness culture mm -hmm. is that a lot of people listening to podcasts like this, see us who are, professionals in this space have probably been in this space a lot longer and and compare themselves to where we're at um and so it's it's really just the step in front of you so we, we've obviously got to figure out where you live what's in your environment what's available uh, what fits into the budget all of the different things we have to factor in but we just have to take one step you don't have to jump 10 and i mean the only time that you might want to jump 10 is if you've got somebody that's just received a diagnosis um you know has just been put on a surgery list or something like that and they've um you know come along and said hey i need to change stuff rapidly overnight so that's the only case but yeah i think a lot of people are trying to to jump to where we're at um rather than being like where am i and what is the first step that i need to take in order to get there in two years three years five years um so yeah we just need to take one step forward and for many people that's just beginning with just eat real food that's my whole dietary philosophy jerf just eat real food. Um, and so that that first step usually takes a little while because most people are so used to um, buying things in pa packages and, and cans and that type of thing. So learning how to cook is is might have to be a part of that if you don't have access <laughs> to any type of meal delivery, which we're very privileged to have lots of that here in Australia, um, but many places don't. So, um, so yeah, 
I think just the step in front of you is the most important one. I like that. Right. And um, I think that's important. You know, I always say frozen vegetables are better than no yeah. vegetables. And they'll oftentimes frozen organic and are like picked and they're, they've maintained their nutrients more than something might be sitting on uh, yeah. in the grocery store for a week or two. So it is really important to meet yourself where you are, but really do your best with that. So before we talk about uh, your programs and how people can find you, is there anything, um, and I always, this is just like one of those really, <laughs> one of these like uh, social media type questions. Is yeah. there anything you say like, please stop eating these types of foods because this is, this contributes to so much in terms of unhealthiness and um, messing up your taste buds, et cetera. Is there anything that you're like, if we could stop having people eat this, this is what I would recommend. Or are you pretty much like, yeah. Vegetable oil. Vegetable mm. oil is the most catastrophic thing you can put in your body, apart from heroin. <laughs> ah, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, uh, so if people are making something or they're used to using vegetable oil, say for cooking or for salad mm -hmm. dressings or something, yep. what, wh why is it not good? And what would you use as a replacement? Yeah, so um, it's not good for so many reasons. Um, basically, what happens is the when it goes to the factory initially, uh, those things actually stink. Like they smell really, really bad. And your vegetable oils and, and are not actually vegetables. So what we're talking about are nut and seed oils. So your cotton seed, safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, rapeseed oil, grapeseed oil, all of that stuff that's in the perfectly golden, shiny syrup aisle of the supermarket in the oil aisle. All of that has been through a heat and chemical treatment process of somewhere between 30 to 60 steps. And along that journey, it was um, colored. So it look, it's not naturally that pretty. It was deodorized because it actually smells horrific naturally because um, it's not meant to be created, turned into oil. Um, and it tastes terrible. So they add flavor enhancers to it. And the other thing is too, that when we heat oils, it's like the oil you put in your car, right? You've got to make sure it's a, a particular number so that, it, you know, because your end, that engine goes to a particular temperature. Now, it's the same in the kitchen is that when we heat oils and when we heat things, they obviously change as we heat them. And so with oil, it um, breaks down and denatures and the molecules in the oil become highly inflammatory. The problem is with vegetable oil is it's already done that 30 or 40 times in the process of making it to begin with. So by the time it even ends up in the bottle, it's already absolutely loaded with highly inflammatory uh, compounds. And then we go and heat it again in the kitchen for like the 10th time or whatever it is, you know, but it's definitely not the first time. Um, so we, we really want to steer away from them. Plus they have a really high level of omega-6s. So we should be getting a ratio, there should be a much healthier ratio of omega omega-3s to omega-6s, but the Western diet, because everything's cooked in vegetable oil, we have an extremely high intake of omega-6s, which push us over into the inflammatory space. And so I think for heart health, for arterial health, for gut health, uh, for like the most important thing anyone can do is remove vegetable oil. And now you've got to read the packages because it's used in everything. <laughs> it's used in everything because it, help, it helps preserve and enhance flavor, uh, which is why we use it because um, it adds shelf life to everything. So yeah, it's it's in a lot of, lot of different things. But if there's one piece of health advice that I was like, this is this will significantly change your results for all sorts of stuff. It would be removing vegetable oil. And it'll take a little while for your body to recover, so you won't see the results overnight. But 
the thing we should be using instead is first and foremost, you want to look for cold pressed oil. Um, and you just want to get away from the the vegetable oils. Remember, they're nut and seeds. There's not actually vegetables. A group of businessmen sat down and agreed on the term vegetable oils in the 70s so that they were marketable. Um, but we actually want to move towards things that we've used for a long time. So we've got like ghee, animal fats, so tallow, lard, suet are really good options. Um, avocado oil, there's very few um, nutritionists and scientists that debate about um, the, the smoke point of avocado oil. So that's pretty good. Olive oil is not too bad. We want it lower temperatures though. We don't want to cook that with the really high stuff. Um, and again, make sure all of it's cold pressed. Mm, thank you. That's That was very helpful. I think, yeah, it's very confusing when you hear vegetable oil that it is actually these nut and seed oils and they, are, yeah. they can be highly, highly inflammatory. All right. Well, we could talk on and on and I'm sure people will have lots of questions for you. But first of all, where can people find you and can you talk a little bit about the programs that you offer, whether it's individual or group or a combination? Yeah, sure. So um, I also have a podcast, which is really cool. It's called How to Not Get Sick and Die. So come and hang out there and um, we cover all sorts of different topics. We've got a vegetable oil episode. Um, I've got a Facebook group for healthy mums. It's called the Healthy Mums Collective for women that are wanting to end their emotional eating, sugar binges, that type of stuff. So feel free to hang out there. Uh, my website, maddielansdown.com so all the stuff that you might need is on there as well and programs so yeah we work with predominantly women and mothers um, to get control of their food choices and end their emotional eating so they can actually have that sustainable health that lasts long term that we were kind of talking about a little earlier so digging into the emotions digging into the motivations as to why all the other diets didn't work and fixing fixing it in a way that actually works long term Wow. Well, thank you so much. I think that uh, you're just a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate you sharing yourself with us today. So thank you again, Maddie. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate the invite to be here. And for everybody that's listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.